dear congregation, we all live by hope. If you are unsaved, if you are an unbeliever, you live by hope. If you had no hope for the future, you would despair. But you put your hope in things of this life. And out of God's common grace, you get some satisfaction in things of this life. But the message of 1 Corinthians 15 is that ultimately, if you're not saved in a resurrected Christ, your hope will be in vain. And you will go to the place of hopelessness. You will perish in hell. That's a solemn thought. Are you ready to die now if God were to call you home tonight? But if you're a believer, your hope is in a resurrected Christ. No resurrection, no hope. For you, life is like a long trip. You might say a spiritual pilgrimage to reach Christ and to be with Him in glory. Everything about your hope is connected to Jesus. To Jesus being alive and almighty and interceding at the Father's right hand. Tonight, I want to look more closely with you from this great chapter through a great text about this resurrection hope. Our text is verses 19 and 20 and verse 58. 19 and 20, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. In verse 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So our theme tonight is resurrection, hope, exclamation point. Resurrection, hope. And we want to look at three thoughts. First, a momentary yet miserable hope. Second, a magnificent yet moderate hope. And third, an unmovable yet moving hope. Now, the Corinthian Christians did not deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. For as Paul tells us in the opening part of this great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, there were 500 believers who witnessed, who personally witnessed that Jesus was alive. And Paul is confident in saying that more than half of them, 
are still alive today. In other words, there's at least 251 witnesses of the 500 that can vouch for it. Jesus is risen. We have seen him with our own eyes. So indeed, the resurrection of Jesus became immediately a part and parcel of the apostolic tradition. Everyone knew that Jesus was risen from the dead. Everyone who named the name of Christ at least knew that. But there were some Christians at Corinth who had difficulty believing in a general physical resurrection of the dead of all mankind. It was fine that a spotless Savior would rise from the dead. But you see, the people, the masses, especially in the Gentile churches, had been influenced by the ancient philosopher Plato. And Plato had taught that the soul is the good part of man. And the soul is imprisoned in the body. Plato put it like this. He said it's like a bird in a cage. And when you open the door and you let the bird out, the bird has freedom to fly. And he said, the bird is like the soul, the cage is like our body. The soul is good, the body is evil. And so when the body dies... The soul is set free. Now, this is obviously not the biblical view, not the Christian view, but that, that view had permeated the education of the children, and it was deep in the psyche, also even of Christians, that for the body to arise would have been a negative thing, a negative thing, because God saves the soul, the Christians taught, but the body... Oh, the body is evil. And therefore, the best thing that could happen is that the body would stay dead and the soul would live and be with Christ. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's striving to correct the false Corinthian thinking on this matter. He's telling us the consequences of disbelieving in the bodily resurrection. He says, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? See, Paul's logic is pretty clear. He's saying, Christ and Christians are in union. The church is the body, Christ is the head, speaking metaphorically, figuratively. So they are one. You can't sever the head from the body. If Christ is risen, as you all know, Corinthians, then we will also be risen because we will be like him as he is. So if we're not risen, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ will not be risen or was not risen, then there's no gospel to preach to the lost. He says in verses 14 and 15, yes, we'd even be found 
false witnesses of God. Our preaching would be vain. Our faith would be vain because we've testified of God that he raised up the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, we will not be risen. If he is risen, we will be risen. That's his logic. There's no gospel of salvation. There's no deliverance from death. There's no eternal life if the whole man is not risen to praise God, to, to praise the risen God-man Savior sitting at the right hand of the Father. If Christ is not raised, we have only a momentary hope. Then Christianity is, is vain. Then Christianity would be a sect that would just die out very quickly because God has testified that he would raise his son from the dead. So Christ's resurrection from the dead proves that the Father has accepted the sacrifice that Christ made on behalf of sinners. He was raised again for our justification, Paul says in Romans chapter 4. So if Christ is not risen, Christianity is a hoax. And the great sin question is not settled. And the devil is not defeated. And atonement has not been made. And there's no salvation for lost sinners like you and me. If Jesus had remained in the grave, there'd be no Christian faith at all. His disciples would never have written the New Testament. Martin Luther put it this way. It's like a door with two hinges. If the door only has one hinge, it's not going to work. He said the two hinges are the death and the resurrection of Christ. And by that double, that special weekend, Good Friday, Easter morning, by that double historic redemptive event, the door of salvation swings open and works on the two hinges of he who died for you and he who rose and lives for you, dear child of God. And so all your trust and all your hope for this life and a better life to come must be placed upon this resurrected Christ. But if he's not risen, verse 19 says, well, your hope is miserable. You trust on nothing more than a bruised reed. You will be deceived in the end. And those who have fallen asleep, he says in verse 18, in Christ, they will also perish if Christ was not raised. You see, everything depends upon him being raised and then us following him, being raised by him to be with him. He cannot be our Savior in this life and our Redeemer and our everlasting Lord in glory if he's not risen from the dead. In fact, in fact, our text says, really, we're, of all people, most miserable because we're, we're pitiable. We're unhappy. If, if this is not true, then we've believed in Christ's redemptive work in vain. We've given up the world with all its pleasures and follies and friendships in vain. We've expressed our hope in Christ. And we've been willing to be exposed to the hatred and the reproach and the persecution of the world all in vain. We have been chastised of God in vain. 
We have been harassed and tempted by the devil. In vain, we have fought against the world and sin and Satan and our own fleshly lusts. In vain, we have prayed in vain. We have preached in vain. Then our hope is only confined to this life. Shortly, if Christ be not raised from the dead. And even that hope is flimsy at best. Because Christianity then is just a colossal mistake. And of all people we are to be most pitied. For we are going to lose both this world and the world to come. We have no future. We don't have the future of which Spurgeon said. God's people get the best of both worlds. They have communion with Christ in this world that the world knows not of. That is a thousand times more than anything this world can afford you. And yet the best is to come perfect union and communion with Christ forever in glory. If you don't have that, what do you have? Then Abraham and all other believers have sought in vain for a city that has foundations. Then Moses and the children of Israel have chosen in vain to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Then in vain we have counted all things lost except for the excellency of Christ. Then in vain we have denied ourselves and crucified our flesh. In vain we have been oppressed. In vain we have hoped. In vain we have believed. But, here's the good news. Do you notice that Paul puts us all in the if category? If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You're yet in your sins. You see, it's an if. But now, verse 20, the transition. But now... Is Christ risen from the dead? None of these if problems are real because now Christ is risen from the dead. You don't just have a momentary miserable hope. You have a magnificent hope, dear people of God, because now, now we may say we are the most blessed people on earth because Christ is risen from the dead. Now we of all people are most happy and most hopeful for God has accepted the sacrifice of His Son, and there is no condemnation to those who are in Him. Our faith is not in vain, but is the power of God unto salvation. And now, preaching is full of power and comfort in the resurrection of Christ. Now, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, expecting salvation from Him, have entered into eternal bliss. Now, all our sins are forgiven, dear believer, and they are buried in Jesus' empty grave. The resurrection is the hope, the validation, the V-day, the victory day. Of Christianity. Now it's hard for us to, to grasp this. 2,000 years later, we, we grew up, most of us, hearing about the resurrection of Christ. When Easter comes along, well, it's Easter again, and we're going to hear about it again. But do we grasp the wonder of this? The, the, the validation of all Christianity rests in this resurrection. See, the New Testament saints got it. They got it. 
They were sorrowful. They grieved. They couldn't understand why Jesus would die, that Satan would get the victory. They mourned. They came on resurrection morning, and the grave is empty. Empty. What happened? And they find out, oh, they meet Jesus. He's risen. He's risen. All their Christianity, all their hope in Christ is validated. You know, when you walked into church tonight, what did you say to the people you met? Good evening. Or hello. Or how are you doing? That's not the way the New Testament Christians greeted each other. They didn't say hello. I'm not saying we should change what we do here, but you see, they were so vibrant living out of this resurrection. When they saw each other, they would shake hands or, or they would hug or they'd give each other the holy kiss and they'd say, the Lord is risen indeed. The Lord is risen indeed. That was their hello. This is everything to us. This is our magnificent Christian hope. Now, I want to look at this magnificent hope like a, like a diamond. Like uh, you young ladies who recently maybe got engaged and you, you just went around and you showed people your diamond, right? And when you showed them their, your diamond, what did you do? Did you just hold it out like that? And I've seen a lot of young ladies go like this. They kind of twist their hand a little bit so you can see different aspects of the diamond. Well, I'm going to give you five diamond aspects that just glitter with light from the resurrection hope of Christ. And they all begin with a C, so you can remember them. First is, the resurrection's magnificent Christ-centered hope. Christ-centered hope. Now, this resurrection hope is Christ-centered, I say, in, in three ways. Probably more than three, but here's three main ones. First, the resurrection of Christ is God's validation of Christianity itself. The empty tomb, the living Christ, means that death has lost its sting, sin is subdued, the world is overcome, Satan is trodden underfoot, Christ who was delivered for our offenses is raised again for our justification. Christianity is real. And you can't deny it says Paul. <laughs> There's 251 or more witnesses. They've seen him risen from the dead. Just as he said. He would lay down his life and for three days and three nights and he would arise from the dead. You know, on our first tour to Israel, when we came to the supposed sepulcher of Jesus, you know, there's a door still today on that on that tomb, that empty tomb. And it says, He is not here, for He is risen. And our guide, we had a very godly guide. Thank God for that. But as we gathered around that empty tomb, and we looked at that door, the guide said to us, you don't have to come to Israel to realize this, but the words you're reading right now, that's the greatest news you'll receive ever in your entire trip to Israel. He is not here, for he is risen. 
That's the best news you'll ever hear anywhere in the world. Christianity is real. Has it, has it become real in your, in your heart? Has Christ become more real than the pew you're sitting on right now? Has it ever become real for you that you said, He's alive. That means every stone is rolled away. Redemption is accomplished. Eternal life is secured. Justice is satisfied. The curse of the law is buried. Debt is canceled. God's amen on His Son's work has resounded throughout the universe. For Jesus is alive. Christianity is objectively, certifiably real and true. It's undoubtable. That's what the resurrection did for Christianity, for believers. Second, this is a Christ-centered hope in the resurrection of Christ because it's God's guarantee of our resurrection and our ultimate conformity to Christ. Paul puts it this way in verses 20 to 22 of this great chapter. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. If you're a believer sitting here tonight, this is true of you right now. You've been made alive in Christ and only by Christ and for Christ and through Christ and to Christ. It's a Christ-centered guarantee of your resurrection one day and your ultimate conformity to Christ. As Paul goes on to say in verse 49, as we've borne the image of Christ here, the image of the earthy, we shall, on earth, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We shall be like him in glory, but there in perfection. So Paul is clearly stating that our resurrected bodies as believers will resemble Christ's resurrected body. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I know him even also as I am known. John puts it even more explicitly. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now, here, are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear on the clouds, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Resurrected body, our soul shall be united with it, and we shall worship him in the full man, and we shall be like him in glory. And third, Christ's resurrection guarantees that we will forever focus on Christ in glory. Revelation 7.15 says, Christ will sit on the throne of glory forever, high and lifted up in the midst of his people. They shall gather around him and they shall gaze upon him. Never having to break my, my, my glance, my gaze upon Jesus. Here in this life, we're 
We're so worldly, aren't we? We're so fleshly, we're so earthy. If we get glimpses of him, as Samuel Rutherford said, I get glimpses of Emmanuel. But we turn away. We turn away because of this world. We turn away because of our own guilt. We turn away because of a sense of shame. He's so holy, we're so unholy. We're prone to turn away. We're bent to backsliding. But there, you see, we will be perfect as he is perfect. We will be as holy as he is holy. We will gaze upon him, John says, and never have to turn away. We will forever be focusing on Christ in glory, forever basking in his holy smile, forever worshiping at his holy feet, forever feasting in his holy presence, forever bathing in his holy glory, forever delighting in his holy communion. Christ will be all and in all. That's why Paul could say, not only in this life, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, because I'll be with him in perfection forever. So this magnificent hope is magnificent because, first of all, it's Christ-centered. Secondly, this is a magnificent hope because it's a conscience hope. A conscience hope. What do I mean by that? Well, It's one thing to hope objectively in Christ outside of me. It's another to have that hope ratified in the courtroom of my own conscience, in the subjective hope within me. See, when the Holy Spirit works salvation in you, he leads you to that hope by first convicting you of your sin and making room inside of you for Christ in his dying and resurrecting power. And he then shows you, you see, how how miserable your hope is in yourself and how you can't even hope in your best righteousnesses or your best prayers or your best tears. Everything in you, it comes short. All your righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. And you feel there's no hope in me. I need Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes you feel the curse of the law. He makes you feel convicted by your sin. He makes you, he makes you come face to face with the judgment of God and the solemnity of your unreadiness to meet him. And you, you cry out, give me Jesus, don't you? Else I die. To, because without Christ... I'll be without holiness, I'll be without righteousness, I'll be without a savior, I'll be without an advocate, I'll be without a mediator between God and us. Without Christ I can do nothing, without Christ I can never stand before God. To be without Jesus is to be under the wrath of God and under the curse of God. So your conscience condemns you. And so every God-taught soul learns to need Jesus. Give me Jesus, else I die. Every God-taught soul feels to one degree or another. God varies in in the extents of this and and the length of it. But every God-taught soul will feel, at least to some extent, the sentence of death in their own soul. You're, You're brought to a crossroads, aren't you? Either Christ must save me or I must burn in hell forever. I need this Savior. And you see... Like a martyr's last words at the stake, many of the martyrs, you know that, they cried out as the flames came over them, none but Christ, none but Christ, 
None but Christ. And they died in Christ. And you see, that's how a poor sinner feels when you realize that you can't stand in God's sight without the perfect double obedience of Jesus Christ. The passive obedience in him paying for your sin and his suffering. The active obedience in him obeying the law perfectly so you have a right to eternal life. When you by faith believe in him and his double obedience, that double obedience is imputed to you and all the sin and all the hell that you deserve is imputed to him and he takes it all over and he, he, he shuts the doors of hell for you and opens the gates of heaven and tastes the essence of hell for you and is a substitute for you and atonement for you. And when you see that and you see that he rose again to keep you, to keep you saved from the right hand of the Father, you say, oh, it is all in Christ. It is all in Christ. Christ satisfies my conscience. I am freed in him. In him I believe there's no more condemnation. My conscience is satisfied by hoping in Him. You know, I mentioned already Romans 4.25, a glorious text. He was raised again for our justification. What does that mean? Well, the word raised up there it just has a, has a Middle East nuance to it that we don't pick up in the West. And let me just explain this a moment so you grasp this. So there's an implicit reference here to a custom in the Middle East. Today you walk into a store. Let's say you women, you walk, you're walking into the mall. And you want to buy a shirt for your husband. And you go to the men's store, you look at the shirts. And, uh, oh, you see a shirt you like. And you say, that, that will look good on my husband. And you look at the price. And then you make a decision, don't you? I'll buy it or I won't buy it. Well, in the Middle East, there was no ancient times. There was no price on anything when you walked into a store. So how did you know what the price is or, or, or what, you, what, you could, what you could buy? Well, what you would do is you'd have a little piece of paper with you. And you would write the price that you were willing to give for that shirt. And you put it on top of the shirt. And the store owner would be standing around. He'd be watching you. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's a price there. You would walk away. See, because Middle East operates more by shame. You don't want to shame your customer. And you don't want to shame the store owner. So the customer walks away. And then the store owner goes over to the shirt. He looks down. Oh, there's the price. Say it's $50. But no, he needs at least $60. So he stands up, he walks away. And you're watching him, another corner of the store. And you say, oh, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. Then you have to make the decision whether you go back again and, and try again. Sometimes you might have to try three times. But if the store owner comes and he picks up that piece of paper, he lifts it off of the shirt, bam, you know it's sold. You know you've got it. You see, raised up, raised up, raised again. That's implicit in Paul's 
meaning of the word. But now it's not you buying the shirt. It's God the Father accepting the price his son gave through his death and in his resurrection. He's lifting up his son. He's lifting up his son saying, the price is paid. Jesus was right when he said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. And all those who trust in him can have not just the shirt, but can have salvation free through the blood of the Son. He was raised again. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the amen of God the Father that his justice is satisfied through the sufferings of the Son who paid the hell and the death and the whole price of sin that his people deserved forever. And you see, when you understand that, then your conscience is satisfied. Because God is satisfied with His Son. And you see, you can have, of course, an, an erring or an erring conscience. You can have a conscience that just doesn't understand the gospel. And I, I, no doubt there's some people sitting here tonight who, who have that. You're somehow trying to add, aren't you? You're trying to add something to the work of Christ so that there's something of you that might be accepted by the Father. But you see, in God's way of salvation, His Son has done everything. And all you, all you need to do is receive it. It's done. It's finished. To telestai is the Greek word. One word in Greek. It's all finished. God has satisfied every aspect of salvation through His Son. Actually, you're insulting him when you think you have to add one stitch to the white robe of Christ's righteousness that he clothes his people with when by faith they are saved. It's an insult. Because anything that you can offer to God will be imperfect. It won't reach his bar of holiness, and it will destroy your salvation. So stop trying to add something to what Christ has already done. He's done it all. And he says, sinner, come to me just as you are. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Because Christ has done everything. Once you grasp that, once the Holy Spirit applies that to you, your conscience is set free. My obedience, said John Bunyan when he was finally set free after all his struggles. My obedience is not in me. My obedience is in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father. There is my righteousness. There is my salvation. In him who's resurrected from the dead, sitting at the right hand of the Father. For my salvation, oh, I am saved. And you see, the burn rolls off of his back. His conscience is set free. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You see, this is our joyous hope. But it's not only a Christ-centered hope and a conscience hope, it's also a corporate hope. That is to say, it's the whole body of believers. It's not just you alone being saved. There's something beautiful, isn't there, about, uh, well, for example, I've, I've been at conferences where there's thousands of ministers together. And, uh, you ever hear thousands of beautiful 
male voices singing with all their might, singing with all their heart. You look around, and a lot of the men are crying even as they're singing because it's just so beautiful that this hope is not just a solitary hope for me, but it's a hope for a multitude that no man can number. And you see, that's what Paul is getting at, not only in 1 Corinthians, but throughout many of his epistles, that the full glory that awaits the believer is a glory that they share with millions and millions and millions of other believers, and that Jesus can say to his Father on the great day, Here am I, Father, and all those, all those whom thou hast given me, not one chair will be empty in heaven. Christ's work will be fully done, fully finished. So our resurrection hope is not just a hope for me. It's a hope for, well, that God can work in my spouse and my children and my grandchildren, of course. And when I see the fruits of that in loved ones or in church members or in people that I meet uh, outside of the church, uh, in other churches, well, there's just something beautiful about this, isn't it? That, that God gives this, this anticipation. We're going to be a perfect church, a perfect visible church in glory where there's not a single unconverted member there and there's no imperfection there. I will be perfect. Everyone else will be perfect. We'll be a perfect church in heaven. The church triumphant. Here we're a church militant. We're fighting. We're fighting against sin. Sometimes there's even divisions in the, in the church on earth, sad to say. But in heaven it will be different. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. The supreme good is the glorification and enjoyment that comes in the union of the risen Christ with his entire bride, the risen church. And the delight of that union will be like the physical and spiritual delight of the union of husband and wife. It is that towards which all of God's creation is leading, that fulfillment of man's chief end, the full glorifying and enjoying of God will come and we as his bride, the church, in our resurrection bodies will be united with Christ in his resurrection body together with all other believers and we shall all be like him and we shall all ever be with the Lord. What a day, what a day that will be. No more sin in our soul, no more sin in our body, no more temptation to sin, no more temptation to be tempted to sin, forever done with sin, forever in union with Christ, and everyone around us will be the same, perfectly saved, will be so sin-free that our holy, spotless bridegroom will look at us and see, say, I see no spot in my Jacob and no transgression in my Israel. Amazing grace. But then this hope will not only be Christ-centered, and it will not only be corporate in terms of large numbers, and it will not only be a conscience hope, it will also be, this is there's just a little difference here between corporate, meaning the whole group, and corporeal. That's the old-fashioned word. Today we'd probably say physical. But corporeal hope, that is, it's also the hope of our body. It's not just, Paul goes on to mention, not just our soul will be perfect. You see, even the souls of our forefathers, maybe you, like me, maybe you've got a father and a mother in heaven right now. 
but it's just their soul. It's a wonderful joy to have, but there's still something missing. It's not the full, full resurrection power of joy where the whole man is redeemed. You see, Plato was wrong. God wants to redeem the whole man, soul and body. Jonathan Edwards said when Christ comes in the clouds, the souls of the redeemed will take wings and fly with joy into their resurrected bodies. The souls of the damned will reluctantly be forced to go into their bodies. See, because the whole man, the whole man will now rejoice with this hope realized, this corporeal, physical hope. So what will our bodies then be like? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in this chapter, that's why I read verses 42 to 44, he said there'll be four differences between our bodies here, will be recognizable, of course, J.C. Ryle's a sermon, that's a beautiful sermon, seven reasons why, based on the scriptures, we will recognize each other in heaven. But there will be differences in our body. And Paul mentions four of them. Look at verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So as I speak to you right now, I'm dying. You're dying. None of us are on our deathbed right now because we're here in church. But we're dying. We're dying from the moment we're born. There's an inevitable process of deterioration at work in every cell in our bodies, which is remorselessly going on until we die. But Paul is saying, in heaven, there will be no such deterioration. Our bodies will be imperishable, incorruptible. We will be rejuvenated beyond the reach of sickness and injury and death. You know, I had a lady in our church, who died when she was 107. I never in my life saw such a strong lady. She said, except for the pain she had in childbirth, she never had a headache. She never had one sickness. She never went to a doctor. She said, I don't know what pain is, except for, except for childbirth. I mean, that's very unusual. But imagine life in heaven entirely pain-free, never so much as a headache. That's what Paul says. Your body will be like that. It'll be like that. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Secondly, it is sown in dishonor, verse 43. It is raised in glory. A body is sown in dishonor. You know, that's, there's no place where that's more evident than in a casket. When your body dies, it's not attractive. You, uh, one of the most awkward moments I have as a minister is when I stand beside a dead body with a family around me and someone, someone says, doesn't, doesn't he look good? Or, or, or the caretaker did such a good job, didn't he? Nobody looks good dead. Nobody. You don't know what to say. Death is the wages of sin. It is sown in dishonor. But it is raised in glory. A casket contains the poor, weak, wasted shell of someone who's been ravaged by one disease or another. But Paul says, 
If you're a believer, your body will be raised in glory, healthy and radiant. Then shall the righteous shine, Jesus says, shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their Father. One old Puritan said, if you didn't know better, when you saw the resurrected bodies of the saints, you'd be prone. They were so beautiful, so handsome, so glorious. Their bodies so strong, so healthy. You'd be prone to fall down and worship them if you didn't know better. Your body will be perfect. You'll be strong and glorious and magnificent. That's what Paul's saying. And then third, he says in verse 43, your body is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. (laughs) How weak we are. Strongest man in this audience. One little germ can lay you flat on your bed. One little germ. We're so weak. We've seen it with COVID, haven't we? We often have to put up with our own lack of strength. Our fatigue, how quickly we get tired. We get tired, we fall asleep, we're stressed. We often feel we can't cope one more day. Our energy drains away because of problems, because of people, because of sickness. Some of you have disabilities, perhaps, that you've coped with all your life. Some of you have ongoing pain, chronic pain. But your body will be raised in power. There'll be no more weakness. No more weakness. This is glorious. What will it be like to serve God with a perfect body? body that pulsates with energy and dynamism and power. You know, I, I once was preaching in Northern Ireland a sermon on, um, a sermon on heaven and, and the perfection of heaven. And uh, there was an old lady, as I shook hands with the people as I came out of church, an old lady walked up to me and she was like, stooped over, like her back was almost parallel with the ground. And she had two canes and she was leaning. She walks up to me and she stops and she, she slowly lifts up one cane. And she's shaking. She says, no need for this up there. Tears in her eyes. She slowly puts it down and she lifts up the other one. And she said, nor this one. It was so sweet. But it's true. It's true. There's no canes in heaven. There's no wheelchairs in heaven. There's no, there's no sickness in heaven. The body will pulsate with energy. No disability will hinder you. You never have to sleep. It's a, it's a, it's a remarkable body. And fourthly, Paul says, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. And Spiritual doesn't mean that it's a spirit. Spiritual means here, think spirit with a capital S. It's a spirit, Holy Spirit dominated body. The spirit will so fill you, you see, that your body, your body will be dominated, controlled, guided by the Holy Spirit. So spiritual doesn't mean non-material. But it means perfectly, ensued, perfectly suited to the environment of heaven by the Holy Spirit. Well, what a glorious thing this is. And the body cannot decay in heaven. You see, you are more secure in the second Adam here than you ever would have been in the first Adam because he possibly could have fallen. But your body and your soul in heaven will not 
even be able to think about sin or possibly sin. It will be impossible to sin in heaven for a believer, just as it's impossible for Christ, our head, to sin. And then, finally, consider the resurrection's comparative hope. Comparative hope. Now, in this life, it's a magnificent hope, but you notice my second point is also a moderate hope. Moderate hope. What do I mean by that? Well, as great as all this hope is that I've just explained to you in four different subpoints, it's small compared to the everlasting hope of heaven. Like Robert Haldane, who witnessed great revival in Geneva, a great, a great minister, who wrote a wonderful commentary on the book of Romans. And his students and his fellow pastors were around him as he was dying with his last breath. His last breath, he just said. His last words. Forever with the Lord. And he died. You see, in heaven, Christ will never be out of, out of sight. Your, your, your hope realized in heaven will be so far above what you've ever experienced on earth. A thousand times, 10,000 times more. Heaven is a world of perfect love. Heaven is a world of perfect holiness. And you'll be in that environment. You'll be perfectly at home, dear believer. Roland Hill, a close friend of Charles Spurgeon, another faithful minister who should be better known than he is, said, if an unholy man were to get to heaven, he'd feel like a hog in a flower garden. You'll be made perfectly holy, perfectly suited for heaven. Heaven will be pure and clean. There'll be no infirmity, not one speck of dust. All evil walled out, all good walled in. It will be an ocean of love, said Edwards, without shore and without bottom. And so in this life, we don't expect that perfection, do we? We have to moderate our hope. We have to moderate our hope. And John Calvin takes up Paul's thoughts here, and he works it out in a a marvelous way, a helpful way, a helpful way. Let Let me just explain it a quick minute here. He calls it, it's a Latin phrase, complexio oppositorum, which simply means the complexity of opposites. What is the believer's life like in his body in this world? And Calvin says there's a complexity of opposites. So on the one side, the believer looks at this world and says, this world is a sad place. This world's like a graveyard. It's filled with the smoke of sin. My body is weak. It's decaying. And, and it's got infirmities, and there's so many sadnesses, so many sorrows in this life. Oh, I long to be with the Lord. So the, the hope is moderated. There's a lot of sorrow in this life. On the other side, Calvin says, the other extreme is, wait a minute, though. The believer, the believer is the only one who can truly enjoy this world in its fullness. Because everything in your life is dedicated to the glory of God. Your marriage is dedicated to God's glory. Your children, you want to live for God's glory. Your work, you want to do for God's glory. You can only have true joy when you live according to the purpose which God made you for, which is to live for God's glory. And when you do something for the glory of God, when you think something for the glory of God, when you speak something for the glory of God, you get a joy, you get a hope. It's the fruit of the Spirit working in you 
that gives you wonderful joy in this life. But you still have to battle with sin. You still have this other side in you. Oh, wretched man that I am, the evil that I don't want to do, I find myself doing the good that I would do, I, I don't do. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And they're both true. So Calvin says there's a complexity of the evil of this world and, and the joy of this world that the believer has more than any worldly person will ever have. And these two come together. And we go forward, walking circumspectly in this life, not expecting heaven on earth, but looking forward with hope to everlasting glory. So it's a magnificent hope, but it's also moderated hope. But it does make us active. It does make us active. It does make us look forward to a better life, to a perfect life, to a heavenly life. And so what do we do? Well, here below, verse 58, my beloved brethren, therefore, because of all these things, therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So in verse 58, you first look at it and you say, what? 57 verses on the resurrection of Christ in our resurrection? And then the last verse, he's talking about work? Work? What in the world does work have to do with resurrection? Well, Paul says it has everything to do with resurrection. Everything to do with it. The entire doctrine of resurrection is teaching us that we don't simply sit back and say, oh, well, the Lord is risen indeed. Now let us sit back and wait for God to come in the clouds, or Christ to come in the clouds. No, no, no. Because of our hope in Christ, we want to live every moment to the full. We want to not waste time. We want to always abound in the work of the Lord. Because of our unmovable hope, we want to be moving onward. Moved by the unmovable to labor for the Lord, to work for His glory, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. See, that's what, motiv that's, that's what should motivate you. The resurrection, you brother elders and deacons and, and Pastor Overdyne, that, that's what ought to motivate us, right? We're motivated by the hope of glory. We're motivated by the resurrection hope. We're motivated by the resurrection power to go on abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. So be steadfast and unmovable even as you're moving. It's a paradox. You're unmovable in the Lord, but being in the Lord, you move forward doing the work of the Lord, striving to live for His glory, looking forward to the day when this corruption will put on incorruption and will ever be with the Lord. So Paul's saying this resurrection hope doesn't make us passive. It makes us all the more active for the glory of God. Resurrection hope puts, puts wind in the sails of Paul. He says, I've labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, the grace of the resurrected Christ working in me. So in closing, let me ask you this question. What, what kind of hope do you have? Is your hope grounded in the death and resurrection 
of Jesus? Do you have direction in your life? Do you have future? Do you have a future in your life? Do you, or do you live as if, well, do you find yourself sometimes saying, oh, well, I'm going to kill some time tonight. I'm going to chill and kill some time. This is the way the world talks. Kill time? Honestly? You want to kill time? When God says, redeem the time. Use every moment to the glory of God. See, the way a Christian wants to live when we fall short, but the way we want to live, we want to take every section of our life, every piece of the pie of our life, whether it's our leisure, whether it's our entertainment, whether it's our, our friendships, whether it's our, our, our family relationships, whether it's church services, whether it's uh, 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 vacations, whatever it is, I want to do it all to the glory of God. I don't want to waste a minute in my life. I want to be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that my labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, does that mean that I shouldn't do recreation? I shouldn't exercise? No, no, no. Of course not. Things are in balance. But when I exercise, why do I exercise my body? So that I can be stronger in doing the work of the Lord. I don't exercise just to exercise. Everything is designed, you see, in a believer's life to live solely Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. That's the way to live. Therefore, therefore, because you believe in this resurrection hope, beloved brethren, and we could say by extension, beloved sisters, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, through the resurrected Christ, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I wish you and your families. Resurrection. Hope. Amen. Lord God, we thank Thee so much for the resurrection of Christ. Even the word thanks, Lord, seems so shallow because it's everything. We, we, We are overwhelmed. We are overwhelmed, Lord, with Jesus. And what thou hast given in giving thy only begotten Son. And we're overwhelmed, Lord Jesus, by thy amazing love in giving thyself and being resurrected from the dead. And we're overwhelmed, Holy Spirit, at thy patience in laboring within us the wonderful work of salvation. O oh, triune God, we thank thee so much for the resurrection of thy Son and for its pledge that we too will be resurrected one day to be perfect in our great God and Redeemer. Oh, Lord, it seems too good to be true. But it is true. It is true. 250 witnesses saw it who were alive still in Paul's day. There's abundant proof. Oh, God, help us to lay down our lives on the foundation of Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. We thank Thee so much for the amazing, amazing, amazing gospel. Fill us. Fill us with resurrection hope for Jesus' sake. Amen.